the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. It's been a desperately quiet period for cryptos, specifically Bitcoin, after a blistering start to the year. Bitcoin is still up 66% since the start of the year, but it's well off its peak of $30,400, which it reached in April. There's no doubt that global banking is in deep trouble, and that seems to be holding Bitcoin aloft. Yet, it seems a concern that crypto adoption appears to be stalling for reasons that are not hard to understand. It's still too complicated to use and better interfaces are going to have to be developed to make it easier for people to adopt cryptos and to transact. Fortunately, that appears to be happening as so-called ordinals, which are different types of content such as images, audio and video are now being inscribed onto the Bitcoin blockchain. Why is this a big deal? Well, it's a novel way of storing data on an immutable blockchain. The rise of Bitcoin ordinals has seen the Bitcoin network explode in terms of usage, fees, and storage space. Suddenly, a new use case for Bitcoin has infused fresh vitality into this market. That's certainly one of the dynamics at play. Another is the banking crisis, which continues to jolt the global financial system. Bitcoin is performing its designated role as a store of value. The crypto market may be relatively calm, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And we're joined by Rob Price of soundmoney.capital to see if we can read the tea leaves and understand exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Hi, Rob. We spoke to you last in August, uh, and I think you're based in Los Angeles, but happen to be in Joburg at the moment. Great to be here with you, Karen. Yeah, it's been... um Exciting time since August last year it was just before the the bottom uh, in October last year, and obviously we've seen a, a strong run up in in price at, you know, since then. But yeah, I think we were um, pointing towards that end of the bear market. Obviously, it was a frantic time into uh, September with uh, the FTX unraveling, but you know we were having those kind of those longer term uh, discussions highlighting the changes below the surface and the, the bottom that was approaching uh, was obviously always difficult to spot in real time but that's why it's important to keep our eye on some of those long-term dynamics that give us a, a little bit of a grasp even though we might not be convinced of exactly what's going to happen next week next month but yeah that's always the case the short term is always difficult to predict <laughs> right i think when we spoke in august i had a check at the graph it was uh, bitcoin was about twenty two thousand six hundred. uh it did go down to a low of 16 just a little bit above sixteen thousand uh, dollars here we are nine months later and the price is at about twenty six twenty seven thousand dollars so where are we uh, in the cycle do you think well, I think the key component here is that the, the bear market is over. You know, markets always go in cycles of exuberance and euphoria down to depression. And, you know, 2022 uh, in the crypto markets, we went into a depressive period and um, where there was a number of forced sellers and a number of own goals by the crypto community themselves. But that's also, you know, that's you know, par for the course. And um, but there were forced sellers, uh, you know, the FTX unraveling uh, along with numerous other unravelings of, of centralized uh, crypto businesses. But yeah, the protocols uh, continue to function uh, very well, uh, both Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and numerous others. And um, it got us through those, those challenging times. The four sellers, the price, of course, it gets, gets a little bit depressed. But looking at our longer term variables, we knew that uh, you know, a, a turnaround was 
likely at some point over the coming uh, months. As I said, we can never predict exactly over the short term. But we've seen that over the last you know, six months, a big rally in, in price you know, ab- above 60% uh, this year. And um, yeah, I think you know, I said that that bear market is, I think, clearly over. It doesn't mean that uh, downside in price is not possible again. But the chances of you know returning to I think a twenty thousand dollar Bitcoin price, I think, are very low now at this stage because you, you have seen kind of long term accumulators come through and pick up price at those at those low prices. And I yeah, I don't even now you see with the dip in price, it looks like bids are coming in as price declines, which shows we've got uh, you know, quite a firm price floor. Once again, doesn't mean the price can't fall down. It just gives you an indication of the cycle has, ch- has turned and people are starting to become more, more optimistic. And as you mentioned in your intro, the use cases, they always were there. But of course, when price is declining, everybody kind of throws the use cases out of the window. Now in you know, 2023, those use cases are, are being highlighted again. And so you know, interest is slowly, but it is picking up in, in crypto again. Yeah, I mean, just talking about use cases, it, it is an issue. I was just looking at this actually over the weekend. A couple of studies have been done showing that global adoption of cryptos is about 4.6%. And that's according to AAA, which is a blockchain company based out of Singapore. It's not quite where it was expected to be. There, there, there was a lot of hype riding on this a few years ago. And and it does seem to be that it's, it's still a little bit difficult to use for people who, you know, are familiar with credit cards and ATMs, you know, navigating the blockchain and the crypto universe is a little bit difficult. Also, the use case issue. What, what are we going to use that? Now, there does seem to be some resolution of that. You know, I mentioned in the intro the ordinals, you know, and, and maybe just talk about that and why this is, this is a big deal, because it is another use case that has come around for the blockchain. I agree. And maybe even just before going directly into ordinals, I would like to pull back the lens and just note that even just, just having a global digital monetary network in of itself is actually a very powerful use case. Now, some people might not feel the need to utilize that use case, you know, using their RAND credit cards as an example from, you know, to buy things day to day works pretty well. But there are other people in situations where that global monetary network is incredibly powerful. And sometimes that seems a little bit simplistic, like you're looking for some other more exciting use case, and maybe that's what Ordinals is, and we'll get onto that. And I do think it's useful, and I think it's exciting. But I just wanted to make that point, that even just having a global decentralized monetary network in of itself actually is a very powerful use case, and it's being used by many people in very profound examples, you know, people in Venezuela uh, mitigating against hyperinflation, people in Ukraine and Russia who are suffering from war and from sanctions and from restrictions from access to their capital. So I just think it's important to make that point first and foremost. You know, you, you don't necessarily need all of these other exciting use cases, but they are, I, I do think they are an, an interesting innovation. They certainly do bring other segments of the market, you know, people who are not as interested in the, in the monetary use case. So yeah, touching on, on ordinals, I think, I think this is a, a very exciting use case. And I guess the summary there is that, you know, innovators have found a way to utilize Bitcoin block space in a different way and therefore can inscribe other pieces, pieces of data. Uh, one of the 
you know, quick use cases, just similar to like we saw in the rest of crypto markets, has been NFTs, people inscribing NFTs onto, onto Bitcoin. But once again, just like with the rest of crypto, it doesn't limit the use case to NFTs. NFTs is just kind of a, a reasonably easy example of a, of a use case that can get kind of up and ready quickly. But you could also see numerous other use cases of just basically putting other programs onto the Bitcoin blockchain, which can enhance usability and create all sorts of programs on top of Bitcoin. So I think that is interesting. And you could potentially see many of the innovations that have taken place elsewhere in crypto, you know, working on financial instruments, as an example, they could feasibly now move on to Bitcoin uh, because the capability to write other programs and put it into the block space uh, has arisen. Uh, so yeah, I think that's very exciting. Another component to it that potentially gets me even more excited than the actual use cases is the underlying debate within the Bitcoin ecosystem. You know, through recent years, you saw a bit of a challenge arise where, you, you know, maximalism, which is something we've spoken about before, and then like the rest of crypto as though these two Maybe, maybe just were, explain what maximalist. That's a person who believes Bitcoin only is the only cryptocurrency. Right, that would be a maximalist. Yeah. Yes, and they and they and they're very much focused just on that monetary use case, which is I'm sensitive to that. I think there's there's value in that argument, but obviously, they, I think there also are other use cases in the rest of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And what Ordinals has done is thrown a little bit of a you know a spanner into the works there for some of the maximalists, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's good to you know trigger people a little bit and, and speak about you know what is the primary use case of this asset? Is it bad to be having other use cases? Some people think that it is, but I I don't think it I don't think it is. I think it's exciting to be using the technology in in other ways, and and therefore. It said it's not just about the use cases, but it's actually mixing up the culture. And I think that's a good thing because one of the things that I think pushed some people away from Bitcoin was this entrenched Bitcoin maximalism. And it's, it's not so appealing to some other communities. But now that we're mixing it up a little bit and got NFTs and got other use cases in Bitcoin, I think that just alters the culture and it becomes a little bit more constructive, a little bit more open for debate because that's really important to be actually openly, freely debating ideas. At the end of the day, this is still a new technology and we're still figuring out exactly how it works and what we're going to use it for over the coming years. Yeah, I mean, just talk about the ordinals a little bit more because there's been a lot of debate around this. You know, is, is this just not an alternative to the cloud, for example? Is it a place where you can store your stuff? It's immutable, it's eternal, but it's recorded. But of course, what you're doing is you're inscribing it alongside a monetary value. So you've got Satoshis and Satoshis are, there's, there's one, is it 100 million Satoshis per Bitcoin? So there, That's right. there, there's a lot of Satoshis in there. You have to inscribe it to some monetary value. But what is the real benefit here? Are we creating more scarcity for digital assets? Is that what, what's going on here? Well, there's no more, I mean, it doesn't change the underlying Bitcoin protocol very much. There's still the, the, the limit on the hard cap on 21 million Bitcoins. Uh, there still is the uh, constraint on the, the size of block space in each block that gets mined by Bitcoin miners every 10 minutes. And it doesn't impact the way the transactions take place. As I said, it's just finding a way to utilize that block space 
in a way that wasn't possible before. That's really all the, the technical difference. But it, as I said, it doesn't. What I like about it is that it doesn't actually change the the previous Bitcoin protocol very much at all. I think that's a good thing because one of Bitcoin's value propositions is that it doesn't change very much. So as I said, I just you know, I think it's really important to reiterate that that is a that is a good thing. Yeah, all you're doing is seeing these additional use cases being inserted into the um, into the protocol. All right, let's change tack here a little bit. Institutional investors, what are they thinking about crypto at the moment? I mean, we've we've heard a lot about Operation Choke Point, which is a campaign to pressure banks not to deal with crypto customers. And this, of course, you know, whenever you get a crisis like we had last year with FTX and uh, just bad behavior in the crypto community, which seems to happen a lot, it's an opportunity for regulators to jump on their high horses and start to, you know, interfere with, uh, attempt to stop. And so maybe talk about that. And has this scared off institutional investors from the crypto space? Yes, I I don't think so. I think that People who already had an existing you know, negative view towards crypto, this has just entrenched their existing perspective. I think that um, those that obviously uh, were already interested, it maybe has even caused them, caused them to double down because they can see that. Um, you know, I, I often think about that Gandhi quote, and he says that you know, first they uh, ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Mm. And I think there's some. You know, there's some you know, credib- credibility to that application of that in crypto markets. You know, in, in you know years gone by, people ignored us, people laughed at us, and now there is a more of a fight underway. Now that's not necessarily, a, I said, a good thing over the short term. You know, it's not a good thing that the U.S. Uh, regulators are trying to clamp down on on crypto in in the U.S., but it does give you some indication of how far this technology has progressed and the impact that it's having and the pressure that it's placing on some incumbents. Uh, Banks and governments obviously would like to have full control over the monetary system, the banking system, the financial system. And you can't have full control over assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So there there is some threat that they pose there. Um, And I think also what's very clear from Operation Chokepoint over recent months is that it's not been a good thing. It has been stressful. But at the end of the day, decentralized protocols are largely unaffected because, as we've just pointed out, you can't really control them. You know, blocks are still being mined, transactions are being processed, and um, it's almost humorous, quite tragically humorous. But at the same time that we've seen this attack on the crypto markets, it almost, you know, it started with that kind of Elizabeth Warren attack on Silvergate Bank, which I thought was quite unjust. Sorry, and Elizabeth Warren is who? Elizabeth Warren is the senator for Massachusetts. Uh. And she is, you know, in, in the, you know, in Congress, and she is quite anti-tech and quite anti-crypto. And she goes out with these big, you know, outlandish statements of, trying to attack tech companies and crypto companies. Anyway, but she started attacking some of the banks that were servicing crypto, one of them being Silvergate. So, you know, but it's still a normal bank, but just servicing a lot of crypto companies. Her attack, I think, was very unfair and should actually probably be, should be, should be put under pressure for that type of attack because, I mean, it's just a legitimate business that she was attacking. But anyway, the point I was just making, it was quite funny 
uh, tragically humorous <laughs> that she attacked Silvergate. They did eventually get under so much pressure that they went out of business. Signature Bank, another bank that was servicing crypto companies, also came under pressure and got put out of business by, by regulators. But that kind of triggered this movement into the contagion on SVB. And the problems at SVB were much bigger than they were at Silvergate or Signature Bank. And that caused, basically triggered this banking crisis, which has got nothing really to do with crypto. The banking crisis is much more to do with systemic issues with the banking and monetary system. But it was somewhat triggered <laughs> by this attack from Congress people on crypto companies um, so it kind of came full circle back to this banking crisis, do, do you, do you which think was obviously any, very positive for crypto. <laughs> is there any self-awareness there for these regulators who, who are doing that? I mean, that seems like an own goal of note. No, I don't think they have a huge amount of self-awareness, right? They, they work on their, their narratives, what think, you know, what, what the, their voters think that they want to hear, and they, they stick to the kind of the party line if that's the way that they approach things. I don't think many of these uh, politicians have a huge amount of uh, self-awareness, but I'll <laughs> leave that up to the, the listeners to decide. Just talk about the banking crisis, because, I mean, they, they, you've rattled off a few names. Okay, so there was Silvergate, there was uh, Signature, there was Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse as well. I mean, for entirely different reasons, but th that was more systemic to the banking crisis itself. Are we anywhere near the end of this? Or is this really the start of a whole kind of long drawn out domino effect? Yeah, well, I think that the, as you said, there clearly was a difference between SVB and Credit Suisse. But you know, that being said, there also are similarities. For me, the truth of the matter is that banking as an industry is under pressure from certain structural factors, things like lowering interest rates, lowering interest rate spreads. You know, these are not good for, for banks. And what banks really like at the end of the day is for increasing leverage, right? That means they've got more business, more, more loans, more corporate loans, more, uh, more home loans. These, that, that is, that's the business of banks is increasing leverage. But we have been through a massive leverage cycle globally over the last 50 years. And, um, People are saturated with debt. So there's not that much more credit that can be extended out into the economy. And that is challenging for banks, amongst numerous other things, you know, regulatory pressures as well. You know, a lot of banks were put in under huge regulatory pressure. They're also forced to hold government debt, which is, of course, not a very, you know, well-performing, strongly performing asset over the last year. So there are a number of different factors. But the point I'm just making is that they, I think there are some structural factors that are pressuring banks that are related to this whole challenge of the monetary system, the financial system, which is creaking and um, shows us the incentive and the pressure to find some sort of alternative or so at least find some sort of a solution. And what we saw from this most recent banking crisis is that once again, regulators don't have any sustainable solution. Because what was the solution? To come in with more liquidity. You know, the, the Fed conducted quantitative tightening in 2022, but in a matter of days, they reversed 50% of that because they were faced by a banking crisis in the US. So when push comes to shove and the financial system and the banking system comes under pressure, they return to the same old tools of basically, you know, juicing liquidity. And those aren't sustainable solutions. And uh, they are more of the same. And that's exactly why we need decentralized monetary technologies that aren't in the control, not, not in the hands of the state. Well, it's almost as if Bitcoin was developed for exactly a moment like this. Is it not true? Because, I mean, if you read the white paper, 
uh, on Bitcoin. It is a critique of the current financial system. And what you have here is the, the, the problem that has affected First Republic, by the way, which is another bank that, that has also hit the skids, mm-hmm. took on a lot of long-term assets at the time when, when interest rates were low, then interest rates started to I- I- increase. And of course, you got this mismatch in, in, in assets and liabilities. Bitcoin is the solution to that. 100%. And maybe, you know, for, for newer listeners who aren't 100% aware, you know, in the first block that was built on the Bitcoin blockchain, Satoshi inscribed a piece of data which pointed towards a Financial Times article which said, Chancellor on the brink of bailout. So it's all exactly to this point of the current monetary system is under pressure it is challenging it has numerous negative consequences which is what we spoke about quite a bit in our our previous uh, conversation but this financial system the only solution the policymakers have is to bail out is to create more liquidity is to lower interest rates those aren't actually sustainable solutions which is why we need an alternative monetary technology and that is for me the key value proposition uh, to to bitcoin and crypto it's just interesting if you look at the Nasdaq uh, Nasdaq banking index, it's absolutely collapsed, hasn't it? I was just doing a comparison of some stats. I think the S and P five hundred is up thirteen percent, uh, no eleven percent since the start of the year. The Nasdaq itself is down thirteen percent, yet Bitcoin is up sixty six percent. So last year we had this correlation where it was spoken about a lot, where Bitcoin was tracking pretty much what was happening in the Nasdaq. Not entirely, it was more volatile, but there is definitely a correlation there. And, and that correlation seems to have been ruptured pretty severely uh, in, in the course of this year. Why do you think that is? Well, listen, at the end of the day, um, correlations are, I mean, they're very, they're very useful. Uh, there's a reason why Bitcoin had a stronger correlation with equity markets at some point. Because, and the key reason for that is because both assets are driven by liquidity. Bitcoin is an alternative monetary system, and so it is directly responsive to what happens in the traditional financial system, what happens with the dollar. So dollar liquidity, if the, 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 the emergence of that liquidity, lots of liquidity, low interest rates, lots of new money, lots of new debt being pumped into the financial system, that's good for Bitcoin, it's good for crypto, and it's good for equity markets. Right, and of course, the withdrawal of those is similarly not particularly good for equity markets, for Bitcoin, for crypto. So there's a reason why some degree of correlation does exist, but just because the correlation does exist at some point doesn't mean that the assets are the same or the correlation is always strong. And this same argument goes for all sorts of different financial assets. You know, there's times when gold is strongly correlated with equity markets, but it doesn't mean that gold and equity markets are the same asset. The correlation also breaks down. And that's exactly the same with Bitcoin. And that's the same argument that I was making vehemently throughout 2022. When that strong correlation did exist for some period of time, and we knew, I knew that eventually that would break down. And that is what we have seen this year. The correlation has started to break down. Why? Well, because liquidity has already been flushed out of the market, and now Bitcoin is starting to trade more to its own tune. Um, you know, more, there's a stronger correlation between the Bitcoin price and Bitcoin fundamentals rather than just liquidity itself. Mm. Um, It's because at the end of the day, Bitcoin is a completely differentiated asset 
you know, its fundamentals are completely different to equity markets. So, you know, just to conclude that, just because a correlation, a stronger correlation can exist between two assets does not mean that correlation is going to hold indefinitely. And it certainly does not mean that the assets are the same. You know, I, I hear some people thinking about Bitcoin as just high beta equity markets because there was a strong correlation at some point. And that's, I think that's a, a really big mistake because you're missing the underlying value proposition. Bitcoin is not an equity market. Bitcoin is an alternative monetary technology. It is responsive to a banking crisis. It is interesting that, um, you know, stock to flow, which is one of the models that you would look at to value. Now, stock to flow is, is, has been used in the mining industry. That's the amount of new if you're talking about gold, the amount of new ounces that are added to the total amount of, of stock that exists of gold. And if you apply that to the, the Bitcoin market, you, you get a very interesting valuation model. But I think the thing that is that has come out after 2022 and the flushing out of all of the weak holders is you now have, and this is according to Glassnode, you've got about 15 million Bitcoin that have not been sold. In other words, these are long-term holders out of a total stock of 19 million. 15 million are in tight hands, in other words. The point I'm making here is that is that Bitcoin is moving into tighter and tighter hands. In other words, people are starting to see that this is a, a future form of money that is going to be significant in the global economy. And they, they want to be holding on to it. So the, there's still speculation, of course, but I think less and less you're seeing that. Yeah, just quickly touching on stock to flow, I think it is important to differentiate that I think there's some value in the concept of stock to flow, like you mentioned it, that an asset that has a high stock of the asset relative to its new flow, I think that is that it, that does suggest that it's more scarce, and that is a good thing. I think the just to clarify, the problem with the stock to flow models as they were created in recent years was the quantitative techniques that were applied to them to therefore try and imply a certain price. I think that was a big mistake. That doesn't mean the concept of having a scarce asset is useless. And in terms of the movement of Bitcoin towards long-term holders, you're 100% right. That's exactly what we've seen. And it's exactly what we see during all Bitcoin bear markets. You know, during a bull market, new entrants start to come in, those tend to be, on average, weaker hands that might be less knowledgeable, they might be more speculative, more prone to selling at some point. Whereas the people who are buying while the price is falling during a bear market, they tend to be more knowledgeable, more long-term in their outlook. And that sows the seeds exactly of the new bull market because those people who have been buying through 2020, early 2023, on average, are less likely to sell as price goes up. And that can give rise to very sharp increases in price all of a sudden because you know, people don't want to sell. And so new demand get, comes in and it doesn't necessarily take a lot to move price higher. Okay, there's a lot of talk about the CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies, which is central banks, uh, what would you say, you know, attempt to replicate what has been done on the blockchain. And... There's been a lot of discussion, you know, is this in any way going to be a solution to the problems that they find themselves in? The, the reason that Bitcoin was created was because there was a waning uh, confidence in the existing monetary system. CBDCs just seem to be, you know, a digital version of what we already have. What do you think? Good thing or bad thing? 
Well, we're 100% exactly. They are a digital version of what we already have. People and I, I just, you know, what I think is a really interesting point to note is that we've had talk about CBDCs for many years, but quite bizarrely, over recent months, there's been this huge surge in the conversations around CBDCs. If you go onto kind of Google Trends and look at the talk around CBDCs, it's just absolutely rocketed. And I don't think that's only coincidence that it's taken place at the same time that you've seen this attack on crypto markets from you know US authorities. This is essentially the incumbents marketing their product. And they're under threat from an alternative technology and they are pushing forward a narrative of CBDCs. And the narrative of CBDCs is reasonably appealing. You know, what is governments are saying there is that essentially the technological change is that you'd bypass banks and you'd make it fully digital. So that's not a huge change. But how they're selling it from a narrative perspective is saying, okay, well, we can have more control. So we could, therefore, we could do all these good things for you. We could make it more inclusive. We can make sure that everybody has a bank account. We can make our fiscal payments more targeted directly to individuals because every individual will have a bank uh, account directly with the central bank. So you can say, okay, we're going to make this transfer payment directly to this person or this, this group of people. And then also from a monetary policy perspective, they're saying, okay, we're going to bypass the commercial banking sector and therefore we're going to have more control over monetary policy. We can make it more targeted. We can, um, you're going to be able to tweak this here or there and that'll be a good thing. And you can see how from a narrative perspective, that sounds appealing, but I guess digging below the surface, you've got to ask yourself the question, okay, well, is government actually going to be true on these promises? Are they going to be more inclusive? Are they going to be fair? Are they not going to be corrupt in how they go about doing what they're doing? Because I mean, essentially this whole you know, project, this whole conversation is what we're saying is that the way that governments manage our money is not particularly fair, is not particularly inclusive, that they utilize the tools at their disposal in an unconstructive way for us as individuals, as society, as an economy. And so I'm strongly of the opinion that giving government even more power to conduct fiscal and monetary policy is not a good thing. It's essentially this, the same concept of governments having this power and what have they done with it? Well, they've lowered interest rates, they've got into a huge amount of debt, and then we've got a financial and monetary system which is which is creaking. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think it's uh, it's exciting at all, but it doesn't surprise me that governments are pushing these forward. It doesn't surprise me that we'll see them come into effect over the coming years. And it's up to us as individuals to understand that we will be bombarded with these narratives and they will be somewhat compelling, but hopefully to have enough nous and enough experience to be a little bit skeptical of what government is doing and saying, hmm, there's some other technologies over here which actually put the power in our own hands so that we can mitigate against some of the problems that, that governments are creating. I think there's also concerns about privacy because if you 100%. have a government or the central bank that that issues you a bank account and can monitor every transaction you make, you know, so oh, you, you know, you might be spending money on a political party that you don't, they don't like, or you might be buying pornography or, or whatever. This is, uh, I think the great fear is that you, you really have a big brother then looking down your shoulder. And the, the other one, it's programmable money. It is potentially programmable. In other words, you could have, uh, this money's only got a life of four months. If you don't spend it in four months, it disappears. And it could be tied to things like what has been mentioned, the, the Chinese credit scoring system, 
where you know you you get points for good behavior and bad behavior <laughs> and to the extent that you know you you have too many demerit points you know you you cannot get on an airplane or or a, or a bus or a train is that too far fetched to imagine that that could happen as a result of cbdc's in your opinion no i don't think it's too far fetched kieran if you read the statements from the proponents of cbdc's within governments they often talk about control and you know for listeners who think that what we're saying is far fetched you know i would just encourage them to 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 look a little bit deeper and to ask themselves the questions about some of the actions that governments are taking and whether they're really in the interests of you your family your community your business uh, because i think there's plenty of evidence uh, to suggest that i'm not saying that you know governments are always conducting nefarious things i'm i'm you know that's not what i'm saying um, or that governments are some sort of evil entity but i'm just saying that um some of these tools to at face value are you know created with a, a reason to try and help people but then end up being u- used and once those tools are in place it's very difficult to reverse them which is why it's really good to stick to the principles of trying to maintain some sort of freedom some degree of privacy and also for those that think often hear from people oh, i've got nothing to hide well, I'd push back against that. But I think everybody is not, you know, everybody is justified in having some degree of privacy. And I believe you, me, there'll be things that in your life that you do want to keep private. Like as the silly example, would you want, uh, you know, would you want a camera in your bedroom? No, you'd want to keep that space private. There's certain spaces in one's life that one's allowed to keep private. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. There's a lot of negative press about cryptos in the last year, right? And and you, you mentioned own goals at the beginning, one of them being being FTX and the, the, this kind of crazy behavior that we have seen from some bad actors within the crypto community. Is this a problem and is that scaring people away from this market? Yeah, I do think it is a problem. When you asked earlier about institutional investors and interest, and uh, I do see at the margin that some of that bad press does sway away you know, experienced investors who don't like the fact that there's, you know, scams and Ponzi's and crypto markets and don't like that they've, you know, all these crypto bros talking about buying Lambos and so on. So I I definitely do think there is a a negative impact there. I guess my response is to say that clearly those are not the only uh, participants in the market. There are tons of incredibly credible uh, people uh, in, in crypto who I know, who you know, the people who come onto your show. Uh, and I guess that's part of what we you know, try and do here is to explain to people there are underlying key, really important theses behind these technologies. Now, it's not just about making a, making a, a quick buck. But yeah, I do think that the, the community needs to do more to raise the awareness of those, those voices. And yeah, I mean, one you know idea that also does come to mind that I was I was chatting to Chris Baker about this the other day is uh, you know it's maybe creating some sort of like crypto council uh, to to foster self regulation within the community, not to centralize any protocols, but to create thought leadership amongst a, in a hub of really well-respected people and to raise the awareness that they exist. You know, people like Andreas Antonopoulos, he went really quiet during uh, 2020, 2022, the 2022 bull market, which I think is a really sad thing. And I think some of that was because he got attacked by some, 
you know, more inane areas of the crypto community. Um, but he's a, a real shining light. Uh, he's super balanced. He's got really good perspectives. He's, I think he's a pretty ethical guy. And there's, once again, there's a lot of people like that. A guy like Chris, a guy like uh, Fazar Misani, you know, at Valor. I think these people are, are incredibly uh, powerful people who have forces for, for good. Uh, and so maybe, you know, as a community, we could just you know, do more to raise that awareness. And maybe there could be certain, you know, policies that are, are, are recommended by that council, never mandated, but things like, you know, proof of reserves, as an example. Um, you know, they could say why this is a good policy, how it should be implemented, technically how we could go about doing that, and then really encourage all global exchanges to execute those policies. Uh, and then it would be more obvious for new entrants to say, hmm, this exchange over here is not executing a proof of reserves. Okay, maybe they're not as credible. And therefore, from an industry perspective, we would be regulating ourselves from, from within. Just running out of time here, but it, it does occur to me, you know, when you look at Sam Bankman-Fried from FTX, and he he would uh, he would appear on stage with people in suits, you know, these politicians. He'd be wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Uh, where does this come from? You know, th- th- this is this is not a guy to be taken seriously. This idea that you you know you're you're a slob because you're in the crypto space, you can just uh, you know dress however you want. I'm not saying that 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 is uh, the be all and end all. And I wonder where it came from. And then I saw something of Steve Jobs, you know, when he was uh, CEO of Apple. And there he is wearing a pair of shorts. But, of course, he pulled off some miracles, you know, and, and he was genuinely an innovator. The point I'm making is that I think there needs to be a bit more of a serious management that needs to come into the crypto space. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you there. I guess all I would point out is that this is a new technology. It's an exciting technology. I think it's incredibly powerful. You know, great power comes great responsibility. And there's, there's, I think there's a lot of force for good within Bitcoin, within crypto. But there's always going to be people who are brought along on the periphery. And while, of course, as I said, as a community, we should do more to be a little bit more serious and to advocate for, for good policies, you know, we also can't um, we can't expect all of those charlatans to go away. They're going to exist again in the forthcoming cycle, and we should expect that. And we need to educate ourselves <laughs> so that we are, you know, taking the right actions and not being fooled by these charlatans by acting in by good you know, with, good, with good principles. You know, decentralization. You know, storing one's own capital, uh, not just running after the next new protocol because it. You know, is going up, uh, you know, 100% over the last week. Those are not good principles to go about managing one's time, one's money. So at the end of the day, it still is up to us uh, as a community. Yes, we need to do more, but also individuals need to take responsibility for the actions that they're taking. Final question, Rob. Uh, are we near the end of the interest rate cycle? What does that mean if we are near the end, end of that cycle, and it seems we are, for cryptos? Where does that leave us? Uh, as we are, are we looking now at the, the beginnings of a new bull cycle, or are we kind of in no man's land? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I do think Fed Federal Reserve interest rate cuts are over. I do think we'll see lower interest rates in a year's time. I think we could very easily see uh, a new expansion to the Fed's balance sheet as this banking crisis unravels and puts the Fed under more pressure to uh, to loosen policy and potentially also, you know, economic weakness could also provide more pressure there. And of course, at the end of the day, that is, that will be good for crypto. Exactly how that pans out on a month-to-month basis, well, you know, that, that is always tricky to, to determine. 
But I mean, the long-term outlook for this asset is incredibly positive. And as I said, you know, I think that the the the, the, the outlook over the next you know six months to a year, I think it was also pretty positive. Um, of course, you know, unraveling of risk appetite, you know, yes, that can put pressure on price over the, over the short term. But I'd be very surprised if if price is not uh, you know higher in a year's time than it is uh, where it is today. Rob Price of soundmoney.capital, and I'd urge people to go across to that website, soundmoney.capital, and read some of the research that Rob has put out there. Fascinating stuff, and it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, Rob, for coming on the Crypto Podcast. Thanks, Kieran. Good to be here with you. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.